Right. Good to be with you guys this morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 37 through 62. We're moving forward in our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we're really kind of edging close to the center of Luke's telling of the ministry of Jesus. Chronologically speaking, we're getting right kind of towards the middle. That's where we're going to be this morning. And Luke actually divides up really nicely and simply. Luke 1 through 8 or 1 through 8 and then the first half of chapter 9 um, is just kind of answering the really simple question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? And the answer to that question really culminates in the passage that, Jesus, or that David preached from last week where Jesus goes up on the mountain, the transfiguration happens, God the Father opens the heavens up and he audibly speaks to Jesus, Peter, well mainly to Peter, James, and John, and he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And so if Luke 1 through 9 is asking everybody around all over the place, who is this man? The seas and the waves obey him. Who is this man who even forgives sins? Jesus' father answers that question finally in the first uh, half of Luke chapter 9 by saying, He's my son. He's my chosen one. Well, for the remainder of Luke, not well, really through Luke 9 up until Jesus is betrayed, Luke begins to ask the question, what are we, if that's who he is, then what are we supposed to do with him? We're going to look at the second half of Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 62 this morning. I'm going to read it for us. It's a long passage, but we've just got a, just a very few very simple things to say about it. But I'm going to start in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming... The demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is, against, who is not against you is for you. 
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those, those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, David, I don't know if you remember, but last week, David set us up very nicely um, when he talked about the transfiguration and talked about the remainder of the first, uh, the remainder of chapter 9. And what David said was, is when God the Father breaks heaven open and speaks audibly to Peter, James, and John, he tells them to do only one thing. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. But when you look at the remainder of chapter 9, what we read, it reads as a bunch of examples of the disciples doing exactly not that. They fail to listen to Jesus over and over again. Jesus, the three, come down off of the mountain, and apparently something's happened. The disciples try to cast a demon out of a boy, and they can't. And then Jesus has to remind, that calls them faithless, and Jesus has to remind them again about his impending suffering and death. And clearly they don't understand, because immediately they begin to argue among themselves about who was the greatest. Then even more vigorous competition and rivalry arises uh, as a new exorcism ministry done in Jesus' name crops up alongside the disciples. And on and on it goes with the disciples then wanting to call down fire from heaven onto, Samar onto the Samaritans, and then they begin to devise clever excuses for why they cannot prioritize and follow Jesus. The background noise of the busyness of the disciples is so utterly distracting for them that they can't just relax and listen to what Jesus is saying to them and has been saying. Now, that's a lot. What we just read is a lot. There's a lot of different events in what we just read. But I think there's only really one thing that Jesus or that Luke is trying to communicate to us about them um, from Jesus. And it's just, it's simply this. There is a vast difference between hearing Jesus and listening to him. And there is a vast difference between following Jesus around and following Jesus. Now, let me explain that. Distinction, distinction to you. The problem in Luke 9 is that the disciples are clearly hearing Jesus. I mean, they've been within earshot of him for a long time now, but they can't listen 
to him. They're not hearing him at all. And when I say hearing, I just mean the way that sound registers with our senses. There was a, about a year ago, a great article in the Sunday Review of the New York Times by Seth Horowitz. And he starts his article, and it's about this distinction between hearing and listening. And he starts it off by giving you a little exercise. And he says, everybody, stop what you're doing right now and tell me what you hear. Okay? Now, when you're reading that in the newspaper, you're sitting down, you're reading a newspaper article, or you're reading it online, or whatever, there's all kinds of humming. I mean, there's, you know, your, la- your neighbor trying to start his lawnmower for the first time in the spring. Ying, ning, 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 ning. And the hum of the refrigerator and the cat jumping off, you know, the couch or whatever. All of that stuff is going on as background noise. It's all registering with your hearing. But the second he says, stop and tell me what you're hearing, he's prompting your brain to take responsibility in that sensory experience and now all of a sudden you're listening because you can identify the neighbor starting up the lawnmower and you can identify the hum of the refrigerator even though forever you, you even though just a minute ago you would not have been able to audibly explain that that's the difference between hearing and listening the disciples have been hearing Jesus say all sorts of things but they haven't been listening now The other thing they're doing is they have been following Jesus around, but they haven't been following him. What I mean by following Jesus around is this. This is what I walk into virtually every night at 6 p.m. when I walk in my house from work. I walk into a 4-year-old and an 18-month-old following their mother around asking for milk and juice, and I'm thirsty, and when is dinner, and I'm hungry, just hurling requests at such a rapid and unyielding pace that there's no possible way that all of those requests can be meted out. And my wife, Anna, immediately says what? Y'all need to find something to do and stop following me around. That's following somebody around. The disciples are following Jesus around. I was telling David about my sermon on Friday, and I was explaining that distinction to him. And he said that he heard a pastor make a similar distinction one time. But he's, this guy said that there's a difference between following Jesus and stalking Jesus. Stalking Jesus is what happens when there's no real relationship. It's just sort of kind of planned accidental meetings all the time, but there's no real plan, there's no real deliberate relationship. And Jesus thinks about stalkers what we all think about stalkers, that they're creepy. So we're gonna we're gonna do that. We're gonna do that today. So I'm gonna talk about following Jesus, I'm gonna talk about following him around, I'll interchange that with stalking Jesus. And we're going to talk about what it means to hear him and listen to him. I think there's three different ways, very simply, that the disciples were hearing Jesus and not listening to them. And they happened in this, these five little events. The first way is that the disciples were stalking Jesus because of his power. And they were not following Jesus in his weakness. Apparently, while Peter and James and John and Jesus were up on the mountain experiencing the glory of Jesus' transfiguration, 
the other nine disciples were off the mountain engaged in some kind of failed ministry endeavor. There was a man whose only son was in the throes of demon possession, and he was experiencing something like what we think of as epilepsy. And the man approached the other nine disciples that weren't with Jesus and asked them to heal the boy, but they couldn't heal him. Something, something happened, something was amiss, and, and the disciples couldn't heal him. Now this is strange, because the disciples have healed before. You can read Luke, and you'll see examples of the disciples healing. So what's, what's the problem here? Why is it that the disciples have been able to heal before and they can't heal now? Well, Jesus sort of gives us a hint when he says, You faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to have to bear with you? Now that would have stung, right? That would have been a painful thing to hear Jesus say. But what does he mean by that? Because how can somebody that tries to go and heal someone else in Jesus' name, really be faithless. You understand what I'm asking? If you, if you even give it a shot, you go out and you say, ah, you know, he asked, me to, he asked me to heal. You know, I got a sense that maybe Jesus is powerful. He could heal this boy of his demon possession. And you give it a try. Surely, we would think in that instance, there would be at least a meager portion of faith in the activity of even giving it a go. Wouldn't you think? I mean, what would be faithless, we would think, would be to, would to avoid it, right? You'd say, uh, I don't know about that. I'd rather not put myself out there in that way. I haven't really seen this kind of thing happen before. I, you know, it seems better for me to just stay here and let your boy deal with that. But they don't do that. So in what way are they faithless? Well, Jesus takes a moment and he says this. He says, let this sink down in your ears. In other words... I don't think you've been listening to me, but I want you to listen to me. And Jesus repeats basically exactly what he said in verse 22, which David preached on a couple weeks ago. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. But the disciples, it said, Luke says, they hear that and still they don't understand. And so they fall into a juvenile conversation. An argument arises amongst them as to which one of them is the greatest. And like David spoke about just a little bit ago, Jesus takes a child as an example of what the whole chapter has been moving us towards. To fully identify with Jesus Christ means to turn upside down your ideas of what status is. Now, in, the, now in our world, you know, you guys know this, in our society, by and large, children are not the least of them. Right? We honor and shower our children with praise, and they run a lot of households. It's the, it's, we live in a completely different world. But in the ancient world, children were definitely to be seen and not heard. Maybe not even seen. Children were the lowest of the low of the low on the totem pole. And so for Jesus to take a little child, in the face of two disciples arguing about which one of them is the greatest and to say, this, you guys aren't even close. This little child is closer to the kingdom of God than you are, is to turn the whole thing on its head and to say status in the kingdom of God comes when somebody is eager to be the least of all. 
When you work to be great, you work to be powerful, you work to have that kind of status, you're going to find yourself like a child and not like where you think you are. I still don't understand that the road to glory is paved with pain and suffering. And so the problem with the faith of disciples isn't that they doubt the power of God or doubt the ability of Jesus. That's not what's going on there. They, the disciples don't have any problem doubting the power of God or doubting the ability of Jesus. They get that. They've clearly got that. But the nature of faith in this kind of Messiah, the nature of faith in this kind of Lord is to believe in the power of suffering, of service, and martyrdom. The disciples are hearing Jesus, but they're not listening. They're following Jesus around and stalking him, but they're not following Jesus and what he's called them to do. The second thing I think you see is the disciples are stalking Jesus, following him around, waiting for him to lash out, but they were unwilling to really follow Jesus in his gentleness. Now, Luke sets this chapter up in a way that's almost humorous. So if you think about the way you read it, you watch Jesus tell the disciples something, and then they just go and do the opposite. And it just stacks and stacks and stacks until all of the ironies rush together. He said five things, and they've done five opposite things of the things that he just told them. And so I, when you have, in verse 49, you have John desperately ready to change the subject. He says, Master, we saw someone else casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Now, sadly, this is an attempt for sure, for John to ingratiate himself to Jesus by saying, look how closely knit we are. Let's be a group. Let's not let anybody else into it. This is how zealous we are for your ministry. Let's just keep ourselves close and not bring anybody else into this thing. But that totally backfires with Jesus because this guy's at least being effective. He's casting out demons. His disciples hadn't been to do that. And so it starts to get hard to read because Jesus has told them just then to stop with the rivalries. And the first thing they do is erupt in a party spirit and start talking about a rivalry all again. John condemns the man by saying, he doesn't follow with us. And Jesus must have been thinking, you're not following with us. What are you talking about this guy? He doesn't follow with us. You don't follow with us either. You're just kind of following me around. But it doesn't stop there. It just keeps accumulating. Last night, um, Sully and me and Anna were sitting around just kind of talking in our living room. And Anna said, uh, Sully, come here. I need to cut your fingernails and clean out from under your fingernails. His fingers were just filthy. And so he sits in Anna's lap, and Anna begins to cut his fingernails. And she finishes when she says, is that okay? And he's, he's been sick, but he starts whimpering. And he says, now I'm not going to be able to pick my nose very good. Everyone's thought it, you know, but that is the exact same thing. The filth accumulates. Anna says something, and Sully compounds it by saying, once you've cleaned me up, now it's going to be more difficult for me to get dirty and filthy again. That's Luke 9-esque completely. 
And so Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, and they have to make their way through Samaria. The Samaritans don't accept Jesus, and the disciples devise another very misguided plan to ingratiate themselves to Jesus. They offer to, they offer to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. It's so easy to read that and just say, what are you guys thinking? But you've got to cut the disciples a little bit of slack because they've just been up on the mountain with Jesus and they saw Jesus with Elijah and Moses. And Elijah was a guy that had been known to call down fire from heaven. And so they're with Jesus now and they're saying, you're the greater Elijah, so surely when people reject you, we should call down fire from heaven on them. They're nothing. They're trying to be like Elijah, but they don't want to be like Abraham, who in Genesis 18 pleads with the Lord not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In this case, they want Jesus to hasten judgment. They aren't following Jesus in his gentleness, which is exactly what we recited this morning in the call to worship. Jesus didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He came to make the world whole again, not to call down fire from heaven. Now, Jesus is, in one sense, the fire that comes down from heaven, like John the Baptist says in Luke chapter 3. Jesus is the fire from heaven if what you mean by that is he came to baptize people with the fire and with the Holy Spirit with a fire that purifies but doesn't destroy he came to baptize people with fire to purify and save them from vainglory and self-seeking and rivalry and worldly power and bring them towards mercy and grace and justice and right and righteousness. The, the fire that Jesus is going to bring down from heaven is one that purifies but doesn't destroy. The disciples wanted him to bring one that destroys but doesn't purify. The disciples wanted Jesus to be the new Jonah that wants to call down fire from heaven on Nineveh. Jesus wanted to be the new Abraham that pleads for God to be merciful to Sodom and Gomorrah, even in the face of total rejection and contempt. Jesus wanted the disciples to follow him in gentleness, but the disciples wanted to follow Jesus around and hope that he would make a show and lash out. Finally, the disciples were hearing Jesus say, prioritize me and follow me, but they were listening to everyone else in their life, and so they only stalked Jesus. After all this, we got a somber, sober group moping their way down to Jerusalem, and it must have been quite a scene with Peter looking at James and James looking at John, all wondering kind of where they stood with Jesus after they'd been censured six or seven times in a row. And as they're making their way down the road, someone else begins to tag along, begins to follow Jesus and the disciples around. And he makes this grandiose claim, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. There's no place I won't follow you. And Jesus responds with a statement that has rung ever since through the ages and says, Look, foxes have holes, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus wonders 
I mean, he hears the guy saying, I'll follow you wherever you go, but he wonders. He wonders if this guy, if this guy could, have, could be for real. And surely, at this point, Jesus is feeling lonely. And he's wondering if this group of people that he summoned and called around him to be his disciples are really going to be following him all the way to Jerusalem, to his death on Calvary. And so he says to this man what he's been saying to his erstwhile disciples all along, which is, following me is way more costly than you think it is. A student can't be greater than the teacher, and the teacher doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. And they keep on walking, and here comes another man. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, you follow me. And the man says, let me first go and bury my father, which probably meant... My dad is on death's door. If you can just be patient, Jesus, and wait here and tarry here in this town a while, as soon as he dies, we can get, I'll jump on your bandwagon, and we'll walk the the rest of the way down to Jerusalem. And Jesus responds with something that seems sort of harsh and cryptic. Let the dead bury the own dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then another instance, right on the heels, there's another guy that Jesus says to, hey, you follow me. And he says, ah, if you can just give me a few minutes, Jesus, if you can just hold on one second, all I want to do, all I want to do is go say goodbye to my family. And as soon as I say goodbye to my family, I'll be right back and we'll go down Jerusalem and whatever happens in Jerusalem is fine. But I just want to say goodbye to my family before I go. And Jesus says, something really intense again. No one puts, who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now people have read this passage of scripture and have written books about it and pastors have preached hundreds of sermons on it and people love to soften these words by coming up with clever background images about what he could possibly mean that take away the sheer force of exactly what Jesus is getting at. But there's no really, there's no good reason to take them in any way but totally at face value. Jesus is sniffing out priorities here. He's hearing people make excuses and talk about, their, what, talk about what their priorities are. They're, he's hearing them saying, yes, 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 Jesus, I promise, I'll follow you, but first let me, ellipsis, first let me do this. And Jesus is saying, it can't be that way. No, there can't. This thing is too big of a deal for there to be any other first. It's a wonderful thing for you to say goodbye to your father. And of course, there's nothing wrong with burying your dad when he's about to die. But the son of man is marching his way towards Jerusalem for the life of the whole world. You could be a part of that. You could be in the center of history for all of eternity, and you're talking about going and saying goodbye to your parents, and I'm offering you this magnificent moment in history. They wanted to follow Jesus around and stalk him, but they weren't ready to follow him. It has to be Jesus taking priority before the career, before the entertainment, before money. It can't be, 
Lord, I'll become a Christian as soon as my mom dies because my mom always disliked Christians and she would be horrified if she knew that I became a Christian before she died. It can't be that. And that's exactly what these people are doing. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, are we listening to Jesus or are we just hearing him? Are we following Jesus? Are we stalking him? Are we just kind of following him around? You think about the way this is true for all of us. It's definitely true for me. I mean, it's so easy to sort of follow Jesus around by vaguely coming to church, vaguely trying to initiate relationships with God's people, intellectually ascending to certain pieces of Christian dogma. That's following Jesus around, and that's just hearing Jesus. Those things may be true of somebody that's listening to Jesus, but there's so much more because there's a vibrant spiritual awakening that goes on with this. I mean, we can all sort of say, yeah, I know that Jesus died for my sins, and I know that God sort of kind of has some authority over this world, but I'm not at all ready to make this the center of my life. But that's not the gospel because it's far too important to say that. You can stalk Jesus and you can sort of follow him around by just showing up to things. But to follow Jesus and to listen to him means a whole new identity. It means being indwelt by his spirit. That's what's needed. You can sort of hear God's word and kind of intellectually ascend to elements of Christian doctrine, but not be listening to Jesus. To hear Jesus, to listen to Jesus, takes new ears and it takes a new mind. It takes being born again. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace towards us and your son. And we thank you for this call to, call, to listen to you and to follow you. And we thank you for what we were reminded of in the call to worship, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And so that although the path to follow you is costly, it's also very light and there's much rest along the way. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.